Have you ever written a song? Maybe it was instrumental. Maybe you came up with the tune and the lyrics. Some of the best songs and most powerful songs are often written about someone or something. They're songs that come from the heart. We rack our brains. They're filled with emotion. The best songs are often songs that are filtered through life experiences, joy, pain, loves, and losses. They are honest. They're powerful. They're moving. They're emotional. The best songs stick with us, right? Songs stick with us for years. Some songs stick with us for a lifetime. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21 is a song to God. It's poetry, it's music offered up to God from His people as they had just experienced the greatest deliverance and victory and miracle of their entire lives. And their response, their reply, was simple and spontaneous. Moses and the men of Israel, Miriam and the women of Israel, they sang their song of praise and thanksgiving and glory and honor to God. We haven't seen the Red Sea parted. We've not crossed over on dry land. But we have seen God work. We have seen God work. Many of us in this room have tasted forgiveness. We've experienced God's mercy and His grace We've seen wayward children turn to God. We've seen, ch- we've seen neighbors and friends find hope in the gospel. We've seen our prayers answered. We've seen victory as we battle those sin struggles in our lives. We've seen folks who have freedom and joy now whose lives used to be riddled by addiction. We see God work. Do you ever sing a song to God? You may be tone deaf. That's okay. You may have a horrible voice. That's okay. You can still have a song to God. Specifically, do you have a love song to God? Can you sing a love song to God? One that you sing to Him filled with joy and hope and trust and dependence and yes, love. That's what Exodus 15 is. It's a love song to God from God's people to Him. And one of the things that we'll see this morning is that it's important for us to sing to God. To have a song to God in our hearts. There are other songs that we can sing to God. There are songs that are songs of disappointment and sadness and heartbreak, those will be songs for another day. We'll learn especially about some of those this summer as we study the Psalms. But for now, this morning, let's think about our love song to God. Have you ever sung a song to God? Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know what I'm talking about. You have no idea. You haven't sung to God before. Maybe you're here this morning and you forgot the tune or the words of your love song to God because it's been so long since you were able to sing it. What can we learn from Exodus 15? What does God teach us here? First of all, 
This is a song of salvation. Our love song to God should be a song of salvation. Many of the best songs are rooted in the past, right? This is a song of salvation rooted in the past. This love song is rooted in the promises that God made to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. That a nation would rise from his descendants, that he would be their God, and that they would be his people. But this song is also rooted in what just happened. God's people were delivered. They were taken through the Red Sea on dry land. And there are several things that we can learn about this love song to God, a song of salvation rooted in the past. One of the first things we can learn is that it was spontaneous. You ever been in a situation when people just burst out in celebration or applause? You know, we get it with our favorite teams. We've all jumped up and down. We ran into the streets. We high-fived total strangers when our team won the big game. We've watched the video of, of the, the airplane coming down to land, and we know that the landing gear is malfunctioning. And when the pilot safely lands that plane, we just cheer. Or when the, the miners who are trapped in the mine are delivered, everyone breaks out in praise. We celebrate when folks graduate from school or when someone gets a clean bill of health after a prolonged sickness. It's natural, it's spontaneous, it overflows from our hearts. This love song to God from Moses and Miriam and the people of God, it was spontaneous. It was the overflow of their hearts. I think there would probably be no way to stop this song from coming out. Because they were so filled with joy and gratitude. It just happened. Do you ever pray or worship God or sing or talk to God or talk to others about God? Not because you're supposed to. Not because it's Sunday and it's time to go to church. But simply because you're moved and motivated by God's great mercy and kindness and love for you and other people. Maybe that's something we can learn. Maybe that's something we can remember here. Spontaneous songs and praise to God help make a beautiful song to Him. It's a a song of salvation, and it's a song of salvation that's powerful. Look at verse 1 with me. I will sing unto the Lord. Why? Because he has triumphed gloriously. This song is rooted in reality. It's a song connected to the most powerful story of deliverance and salvation to date. God's people were slaves. They were victims. They'd been used and abused by the Egyptians for hundreds of years. And God took down their oppressors. Some people might find it strange that verses 4 through 10... A large portion of this passage, this song, basically highlights what happened to the Egyptians and how they uh, were taken down by God. But think about it like this. Part of the wonder and majesty of God's deliverance of His glorious salvation, even though their backs were against the wall, against all odds, God delivered them in a powerful way. He delivered them in a powerful way. He completely delivered them. 
Do you remember what they said when things started to get tough in chapter 14? God's people. Just one chapter before, they said, you know what? It's probably better if we just stayed in Egypt. It'd be fine. You know, we can just stay there. God provided real, concrete, powerful, no turning back deliverance for his people. He does the same thing for us today. That's part of our struggle now. Part of our struggle and temptation is to to drift back to the old way of thinking, our old life, the old sins that we used to run to. And we need to see here and remember and sing our salvation song to God that He has completely delivered us from our sins. We don't need to run back to those things He's delivered us from the bondage of sin. Don't be tempted to run back to the old ways. God's salvation is real. He has redeemed His people. He has set us free. It's not only spontaneous and powerful. This salvation song to God is personal. It's very, very personal. It's a deeply personal story. Look at verse 2. The Lord is my God. My song has become, and he has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. It was personal. A lot of times in our culture, when we hear people say, my God, it's usually followed by an explanation of a God that they have kind of fashioned for themselves, a God that fits into their grid, their lifestyle, their thinking, a a God that they've chosen for themselves. But the statements, my God, my strength, my song, my salvation, they're more of a confession and a profession. It's almost as if the the Israelites are saying, God is my God because he came and got me. He came and rescued me. He's my God because I belong to him. And the most significant part of my life and my story is that God has rescued me. So it's not a God after our, after our imagination. It's a God that came to deliver us and we cannot be defined by anything else greater than or besides Him. It's personal. It's central to our lives. Is this salvation song personal to you? Is it your song? Not just a song of your father's, not just a song of your family, not just someone else's song. Is personal praise and thanksgiving and adoration to God part of the song that you sing to Him? Young people, this is a very important question that you need to answer and ask yourself. Is my faith mine? Not just my parents, not just what my friends at church believe, but do I believe? That God has rescued me and saved me. That he's my Lord and my Savior and my God. This is a song of salvation rooted in the past. It's also a song of guidance rooted in the present. This song to God is a song of guidance rooted in the present. Even though it was recent history, they were looking back at what God had done. He saved them. He delivered them. God's love for them and their song and response wasn't simply about the past, though. It was also about God being with them now, in the present. 
A song of guidance grounded in the present. This is part of the life of faith for Christians now. We look back at what God has done and it strengthens our faith. But we act also actively believe and follow God's lead in our lives now. This is active, day-by-day faith. And it's hard at times. It's difficult. We have dark days, and the road ahead of us sometimes feels like it's too overwhelming and too challenging. There are some things that we can learn from this love song to God about God guiding us in the present. First of all, God guides us through His greatness. Look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? One of the ways God guides us in the present is in us remembering and rehearsing who God is. Think about this. The phrase, who is like you among the gods, it's not an acquiescence to the reality that there may be other gods as if Yahweh was one among many. It's a statement like this. Who is like you? And then we hear crickets. Chirp, chirp. There's no answer. There is no one like the Lord our God. Majestic in holiness. Awesome in glorious deeds. Doing wonders. You ever been in a position in your life, I know you have, where you're confused or frustrated, or you don't know what to do, or you don't know where to go, Maybe a position in your life where that frustration is actually directed toward God. Why did you let this happen? How could these things happen in my life? How did you let me go down this dark and difficult road, God? You remember in John chapter 6, when Jesus was teaching about um, the Lord's Supper, there were a lot of followers that didn't like what they heard, and they left. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, do you want to go away also? Peter stood up and he said, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. God's greatness and his holiness and his power and his glory, the fact that he is a rock and a fortress and a strong terror, a strong tower Those are all part of the way that God guides us in the present. And if we don't know how to proceed and don't know how to go forward, we can humble ourselves and say with the hymn writer, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. God guides us in the present through His greatness. The text also shows us that God guides us through His love. Look at verse 13. You've led in your steadfast love. This is the overarching, all-encompassing reality of the Exodus, of God redeeming His people, purchasing them for Himself. It's at the heart of God's promises, and the promised one, and the, the manger in Bethlehem, and the empty tomb, and the cross. God's love is central. God leads us through His love. God took His people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He led them in His steadfast covenant, promise-filled love. We know that God is great. 
which is indescribable and magnificent, but add to that the reality that God is love. And that's not just a tender feeling toward us, but it's in and through God's love that He leads us. He directs and He guides us. He's taking us somewhere in His love. Not because He has to, not because we're His projects or His responsibility. He leads us because He loves us. You've led us in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You remember in John chapter 10, Jesus talked about the good shepherd himself. And he said, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And he goes on to talk about the hired hand. Someone's hired, you know, to take care of the sheep. When the wolf comes, that guy runs away. But Jesus is different. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. The game changer is this, that Jesus loves the sheep. Jesus loves us. He leads and shepherds us in and through His love. Do you believe that? What are the areas in your life where you need to be reminded that Jesus is leading you, not as a slave driver, not as a bill collector, Not as that harsh football coach from high school that was yelling in your ear. But that Jesus is leading you in love. And he's guiding you through the days and weeks and months and years of your life. Another way that God guides us is through his presence. We see this principle unfold and develop throughout the Bible. I will be your God and you will be my people. We see it here in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, a representation of God's presence. We see it as God's promises unfold and the the tabernacle is constructed and the temple is constructed. We see the, the principle of God being with his people as Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came into this world. And in John chapter 1, it says that he dwelt among us. He literally tabernacled among us. We see it with him sending the Holy Spirit to dwell among his people. We see it even in the last book of the Bible where John said he saw as the holy city, the new Jerusalem, came down out of heaven, a loud voice proclaimed, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. God guides us through his presence. He's with us. Look at verse 13, the second part. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. They haven't yet reached the promised land. There are plenty of obstacles and hurdles ahead of them. What does this mean? They've reached and he's guided them by his strength to his holy abode. I believe it talks about God's presence. He is our life. He is our hope. He's our home. He guides us, not from a distance, not from a command center far away. He's with us. He's in our midst. He's working through his spirit, convicting and encouraging and guiding and leading God guides us now through and with His presence. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that God is with us? Walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Do you, think, do you believe that God is with us when we're beside the still waters and in the green pastures? One of the ways that God leads us is simply by reminding us that He's with us. Does your love song to God include stanzas and verses that celebrate His guidance now? By His greatness and His love and His presence. The last thing I think we see from Exodus 15 is that it's a song of of inheritance. Planted in the future. Miriam and Moses, the men and women of God, they knew that this was a momentous event. It was a special time and they sang their song to God from the heart. And it was a song filled with gratitude and trust and love. But you know what else their song included? Hope. It was a song of hope about the future, a song of faith and expectation. They knew God was with them in the past, they knew God was with them in the present, and they knew that He would be with them in the future. It was a song of inheritance. Let's think for a second about God's promises and the future. Look at verses 14 through 16. They talk about how God would lead his people in the future. And it it talks about the end game of them defeating their enemies and inhabiting the promised land. We know that as part of God's story. The land promised to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. The Philistines, the Canaanites, the Moabites, and the Edomites would hear about what God did to the Egyptians to deliver uh, his people. And they would be afraid. And they'd be filled with dread. God promised to be with his people to guide His people, to fulfill His plan for His people. But here's the thing. God's plan and His promises and the future and His timing, they don't always match up with our idea of the way things are going to go. They don't match many times with what we envisioned and how we envisioned it. We know the rest of the story that God's people did inhabit the promised land, but it sure took them a long time to get there. And they went through a lot of struggles and battles in the midst of it. Our lives can be marked by setbacks and struggles and disappointments and hurdles and heartaches. That does not mean that God's promises are not real or that God has forsaken us. Or that our inheritance has changed or gone away. It just means that we have to trust Him and wait and keep moving forward as we obey and honor and follow this great King. God's promises in the future, they're not always what we think, but they're real and true. Another part of this song... Song of inheritance planted in the future is the idea that God's people are planted by God. Isn't that a beautiful image? We see it in verse 17. You'll bring them in and plant them on your mountain. I think everything that I've ever planted in my life has died. (laughs) If there's a word for the opposite of a green thumb, that is what I have. But there's this beautiful metaphor 
God will plant his people. And things that are planted and taken care of in the right way, they grow. And sometimes the very small things can grow into huge, powerful things that could stand through all kinds of stuff. God will plant his people on his mountain where they'll worship him. And part of the blessing and promise of Christianity is being with God forever. It's a promise of eternal life. And it comes from God. Look at verse 18. He reigns, not just for a little while, he reigns forever and ever. We have a hope and a future. It was part of the song that they sang about their future and their inheritance. And the key is that we're established and kept and planted and cared for by God on his mountain, in his presence, at his sanctuary. Because that's what we were made for. We were made to find our significance and our fulfillment and our hope in God alone. Have you ever thought, I bet you've daydreamed about this before, even if you don't have any kind of hope of it, wonder what it'd be like to get a giant inheritance. What would I do with all that money? My grandmother passed away uh, in June of last year, and uh, she was a precious, spunky, generous, cranky, funny woman. I did not receive an inheritance from her, and even if I did, I hope I would have chosen one more morning at the breakfast table drinking coffee with her and talking about how much God loves us. See, it's not about the money. It's not about the stuff. It's about the relationship. Have you ever thought about that your inheritance in, in, in Christ is that we get God forever? This gives us a glimpse of the wonder and majesty of the inheritance that God gives his people. Not money, land, or power. It's God. We get him. The Lord is my strength and my portion forever. He plants us on his mountain and we get to enjoy him and be with him forever. A new song to God. You know, it doesn't say in this passage that this was a new song, but I mean, look at the, the details. Look at the words. There are some pretty good clues that this was a new song to God. They sang about God's salvation, God's guidance, God's inheritance with new words and new vigor. They remembered God's work in the past. They celebrated God's guidance of them in the present, and they looked forward in faith at the beautiful, wonderful things God would do in the future. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you've never sung a song to God. Maybe you don't know what it means to be a Christian and to follow Jesus Christ. And you've never sung a song to God. Good news. You can join the choir. You can join the choir of tens of thousands, millions of others who sing 
their songs to God. And there is no tryout. You won't have to go sing My Country Tis of Thee to join this choir. You simply have to profess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you've lost your voice or you've forgotten the tune and you don't know what a love song to God even looks like anymore. My mother-in-law has a little piece of art in her house and it says, a friend is someone who reminds you of a song in your heart and sings it to you when you've forgotten the words. Maybe God will use Exodus 15 to fan that song back to flame in your life. Have you ever been through one of those spells where your favorite band just keeps producing awesome music? And with each record and each song, you think to yourself, how do they do it? How do they do it? It keeps getting better and better. You know what? That's what we'll say about our songs to God for the rest of eternity. They'll keep getting better and better. And we get a glimpse of it from Revelation chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels and seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea, doesn't that sound familiar, with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. May we sing our song of love to God. Let's pray.